Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of our Local Leaders podcast brought to you by Stand Up San Fernando. As always, I'm Daniel Nepomuceno, and if my microphone sounds different today, it's just because I'm using an earphone piece since my house is under renovation. Anyways, on today's episode, we talk with Shervin Azami, a candidate running for the U.S. Congress for California's 30th District, who is also an Iranian-American, an immigrant, and a public health activist standing on a bold progressive platform. Please enjoy! Hi, my name is Raha Jalali, and welcome to the Local Leaders Podcast from Stand Up San Fernando. Today, I am talking to Shervin Azami. Hey there, everyone. Shervin Azami, great here to be here with you. Uh, so, Shervin is running for California's 30th district for Congress. Um, and that's like the West San Fernando Valley. Um, so we're really excited to talk to him. Um, so firstly, before, like just for a standard question, um, how did you get into politics and why did you want to start running for Congress? Great question. Thank you, Raha. Thank you for having me. Thank you to Stand Up San Fernando. Uh, good morning or good afternoon, everyone. Again, my name is Shervin Azami, progressive Democrat, uh, running for Congress in my hometown, West San Fernando Valley, California's 30th district. A little about me, I am a husband, I am a public health activist, I'm an organizer, and I am a soon-to-be dad, with my wife and I expecting our first child in June. I am the son of two Iranian immigrants who fled religious persecution in Iran at the time of the revolution uh, and moved to Los Angeles uh, when I was an infant. I was born in Italy, Um, that's where my parents fled to after the revolution, Um, and then we moved here to the valley. Uh, when I was just about two years old. Um, my mother worked seven days a week in retail to make ends meet while my father went back to school to become a family doctor. Um, that left me being raised by my grandparents. Uh, we moved around a lot here in the West Valley, grew up in a lot of parts of Canola Park, Chatsworth, Wooden Hills. Um, and I always say that I learned the power of responsibility from my mother and the power of service from my father. And as a public health advocate, I have always fought for social justice through the lens of public health. While in college, I joined student groups advocating for climate justice by addressing the health impacts of toxic urban runoff on our local communities of color. While working for a residential treatment center here in Los Angeles, uh, I heard powerful stories about how our system criminalizes mental health and substance use and fails to deliver the care that people need. Uh, This treatment center uh, was run by a psychiatrist who had a zero tolerance policy when it came to drug use. And most of the folks who lived there uh, were mandated to live there as part of their parole. And so you can imagine by denying people the treatment that they needed, the services that they needed, it was exacerbating um, the pipeline of folks going into our criminal justice system and not receiving the care that they need. And from there, I moved on to working on HIV prevention within our LGBTQ communities, um, specifically working to build bridges between the city and our local communities of color so that black and brown teenagers had access to free health education, contraceptives, and other services. And some of my proudest achievements came when I was legislative director for a national indigenous healthcare nonprofit in DC. Um, this This advocacy group was working to ensure the federal government honors its treaty obligations to tribal nations. And we're working on these issues during the height of COVID-19. And through our advocacy, we were able to deliver over $4 billion 
the tribal governments to respond to the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, we were able to guarantee long-term funding for community health centers. Um, and we were all also able to get bills passed that canceled co-pays and deductibles for Native American veterans, getting us one step closer to something like single-payer Medicare for all. And although I'm really proud of all this work, the fact of the matter is, whenever we're engaging in advocacy, whenever we're working on new programs that were community-based, that were driven by the voices and needs and priorities of the community, there were always roadblocks, always policy roadblocks at the local level, the state level, and the federal level. And these roadblocks are there by design because our institutions are not there to help and uplift and empower working families. They're there to maximize corporate profits. They're there to protect institutions of power that have not helped our working families. And throughout all of this work, I think about the issues here in our West San Fernando Valley, from homelessness to lack of access to public education, to the tens of thousands of family members living paycheck to paycheck, to the climate emergency, and now Los Angeles is ground zero for our climate emergency. And I have not seen our leadership here ever take the stances on the bold structural reforms that we need. And the fact is, we live in a safely progressive district. Uh, Bernie won California's 30th during the presidential primary, and there is no reason why our legislators cannot be taking the bold stances and advocating each and every day for those structural reforms. But our leadership here in the Valley, who's been in office for 20 plus years, he occupies our seat in Congress on behalf of corporations, not on behalf of working people. And I'd be happy to jump into why that is and why our campaign, our vision, is really focused on uplifting and empowering working families, dismantling white supremacy, and ending corporate welfare. Yes, you mentioned that uh, the current incumbent for the 30th District, um, Brad Sherman, um, he really doesn't take a progressive stance. He is kind of mellow when it comes to things. Um, so going into like specifics, what things do you wish you would do better or what things would you do better um, if you were elected? Absolutely. That's a great question. You know, um, it boils down to a number of things and I'll talk about them in three different instances. One has to do with where the priorities lie and where the money is coming from. There is so much corruption in our government because of the revolving door between our legislators and the very industries and corporations that they're supposed to be regulating and actually uh, enacting policies and laws that protect communities and not maximize their profits. But with someone like Brad Sherman, where you have the overwhelming majority of his campaign contributions coming from corporations, primarily weapons manufacturers, commercial banks, private equity firms, credit card companies, even private prisons. That demonstrates that he's occupying our seat in Congress on behalf of those corporations. And from his voting record to the types of laws he introduced, further reaffirm that he's not there to have our backs. He's there to maintain the status quo. And as an Iranian American and the son of immigrants who fled religious persecution, and moved here to Los Angeles. Los Angeles is home to the Iranian diaspora. It's lovingly referred to as Tarantulas. Yet Brad Sherman 
still touts the fact that he was one of 19 corporate Democrats to vote against diplomacy and voting against the Iran deal. And then I think about one of the most pressing issues in our communities, and that's lack of housing affordability, our housing crisis and the crisis of homelessness and criminalization of our unhoused residents. Where I think about the fact that we have five unhoused residents die per day in our city. We have more unhoused residents die of hypothermia in Los Angeles than we do in New York City and San Francisco combined. And I think that our legislator, Brad Sherman, is literally in a position to do something about it. Not just because he's a federal rep, but because he chairs the Investor Protection, Entrepreneurship, and Capital Markets Subcommittee on Financial Services. That subcommittee has jurisdiction over our federal housing finance laws, over authorizing new affordable housing programs, over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, mortgage-backed insurance, U.S. securities, and so forth. Literally the guy that can do something about our housing crisis. And as soon as he became chair, private equity and asset management firms on Wall Street that are worsening our housing crisis nationwide by becoming corporate landlords, buying up units and evicting low-income members by purchasing one out of five homes, single-family homes nationally. These firms, as soon as Brad Sherman became chair, started bankrolling his re-election campaign. That is an egregious example of how Brad has failed to actually fight for the reforms that we need. And he may stand there and talk about how he's co-sponsored Medicare for All, he's co-sponsored the Green New Deal. As someone who's worked on Capitol Hill, I can tell you with certainty that co-sponsorship is absolutely the floor, not the ceiling when it comes to advocacy. All that goes into co-sponsorship is a staff member sending a one-sentence email asking for their boss's name to be added to the other person's bill. They didn't have to help write it. They didn't have to offer an amendment. They didn't even have, even have to offer an opinion, but they get to add their name to the legislation and go back and give lip service to their constituents about all the great work they're doing. That is not advocacy. That is not leadership. Those are empty platitudes that do nothing to actually change the lives of our community members here on the ground. There is zero reason beyond political cowardice and corporate greed that the wealthiest nation in the world cannot guarantee the fundamental necessary services we all need to survive and live with dignity, like housing, like healthcare, like living wage employment, like education, like clean air and water. Everybody needs these services. And by guaranteeing these services for all of us, it protects public health. It protects and it bolsters our economy. It protects and bolsters our national security. But our legislators, and Brad Sherman is chief among them, are not there in the best interests of working people. They are there to maintain the status quo and entrench their own power at the direct expense of working families. Too much for too long, too many people are hurting, and we need to stand up. And I kept telling myself, if I'm going to be this angry all the time, I need to do something about it. Because too many members of our community are dying and suffering daily because of failed leadership. And we have to stand up. We have 
to advocate for a better world, and we know what the solutions look like. What we lack is a political will to get them done. And we're gonna change that here in the West San Fernando Valley in 2022. Yeah, I really, I really hope so. And you have a lot of issues that you speak on and you spoke about a lot of them right now. Um, so I'm really wanna like get into those. So I'm just gonna start. So first of all, you did mention homelessness in Los Angeles has like a huge rate of um, homelessness. And recently you did la launch the Valley Harmony Project. Um, so could you speak on that and explain its mission? Of course. Um, to speak a little bit more generally first, if I may, you know, as a, as a public health professional, um, I understand the intersectionality of our issues. And for too long, our legislators have put forth policies that address the issues in our communities in silos. People's lives don't operate in silos. The solutions cannot operate in silos. And we have to understand how everything from housing to education to healthcare to living wage employment to clean air and water to the zip code you live in, all these things collectively determine population health, which in turn determines our economic outputs and our economic strength and our national security. And so we have to stop looking at these issues through a vacuum and look at them holistically and put forth true comprehensive structural reforms like single payer Medicare for all like housing as an inherent human right, like a 21st century public education system that honors the roles of our teachers and pumps billions more into revitalizing our public education systems, that address the climate emergency for what it actually is, the most existential threat of our times. And we absolutely must transition to a 100% renewable energy economy by 2030. And so kind of bringing that back to this one mutual aid project we're working on, you know, as I mentioned earlier, with homelessness being one of the most impending crises before us, we had 66,000 unhoused residents here in LA County before COVID-19, before COVID-19, roughly 44,000 within LA City proper. And as you can imagine, with tens of thousands of people in our city losing their employment, losing their employer-sponsored healthcare coverage, losing their homes, losing access to services, standing in for hours and hours in lines at food banks, dealing with dramatically worse food insecurity, our homelessness crisis is now significantly worse. And we know that from testimonials from our unhoused residents, from organizers, from activists doing this work, including myself, on the ground. And we also have a ticking time bomb with the eviction moratorium that is soon to expire on June 30th where we have 10 million people nationally who are behind on their rent, who are behind on their utility costs. We need to forgive and cancel that rent and these utilities now. Otherwise, we're gonna see millions of people lose their homes just a couple months from now. And every issue we're facing is gonna become significantly worse. Now on the topic of the Valley Harmony Project, you know, my, as I mentioned earlier, my background in public health, specifically within harm reduction and addressing the needs of our communities by investing in a people-centric and humane and non-coercive and public health-focused solutions to address addiction, to address substance use. That's based in care, based in services, and not based in criminalization, not based in policing. And here in our city, 
Um, as we all know, for many, many years, we've been dealing with an opioid crisis where we've had thousands upon thousands of people die of opioid overdose deaths, preventable deaths. And the COVID-19 crisis has exacerbated our opioid epidemic as a result of the increased physical isolation, social isolation, lack of access to services, shutdowns, all these things have led to significant increases in opioid overdose deaths among our unhoused residents in particular, because they're so much more vulnerable and so much more underserved. Unhoused people here in LA are 36 times more likely to die of a drug overdose than the general population. And we've seen significant spikes specifically within unhoused residents of color that have more than tripled or quadrupled among Black and Latinx unhoused Angelinos. And our city has not stepped in to provide a response that delivers the care that people need by delivering harm reduction supplies such as naloxone. Naloxone is a drug that revives someone who's experienced an opioid overdose. It saves their life. This drug, naloxone, was first developed in 1960. It came off patent in the 1990s, and it used to cost $1 for a vial. As soon as the opioid crisis happened, and we started seeing tens of thousands of people dying across the country, pharmaceutical companies decided to increase the price of naloxone to $150 for two vials, quite literally profiting off of death. As I mentioned earlier, our city was not responding by providing more access to naloxone, was not responding by opening up syringe exchange programs or safe injection sites or access to fentanyl test strips. Fentanyl is a, um, uh, is a drug that's often laced, uh, an artificial drug, excuse me, that's often laced with things like heroin and cocaine and other drugs. It is significantly more potent than heroin and other drugs. It's one of the main factors behind the huge increases we're seeing in opioid overdose deaths, and we're not providing those services to our community members. And so our campaign uh, stepped in and made an initial purchase of uh, 30 Narcan kits and over 400 fentanyl test strips. And we flew through them very, very quickly because as soon as we started distributing them, folks started asking for more and more. And that demonstrated a huge level of need that was not being met. And so we partner with a local advocacy group, the Valley Justice Coalition, a fantastic advocacy group here in the West San Fernando Valley that's doing phenomenal work, advocating and organizing, protecting our unhoused residents, working with them on a new project called the Valley Harmony Project to address this. Uh, it is a separate mutual aid uh, network collecting funds specifically and exclusively to purchase harm reduction supplies for distribution to our unhoused neighbors. And we are really, really proud of this work. Uh, we just launched it this week. And I wanna really make clear that as we are uh, requesting donations for this GoFundMe for the Valley Harmony Project, while our campaign um, is helping sponsor it, these funds, again, are exclusively for purchasing harm reduction supplies for distribution to our unhoused residents and working very closely with Valley Justice uh, Coalition on this project. And we're just really excited about it because we, we need to step up and protect our communities. 
And we're seeing our elected officials fail over and over again in bailing out working people. And that's led uh, organizations and community advocates to step in and provide those services. And so please, please, please donate to Valley Harmony Project. Go on our GoFundMe page and contribute. And again, want to reemphasize all of those funds are exclusively used to purchase harm reduction supplies. Um, yeah, I love the project. I really think it's going like, to do a lot of, uh, it's going to help a lot of people, and it already is helping a lot of people. But um, would any values of this project, any um, parts of this project, be translated into governmental policy? Um, if you're looking into Congress, would you be using your experience from this into uh, policy? Absolutely. Um, one of the, the key pieces of our platform is not only guaranteeing single-payer Medicare for all and healthcare as a human right, but rebuilding our public health infrastructure. Again, COVID-19 must be our clarion call for completely reframing our healthcare system, our entire system. And with single-payer Medicare for all, in addition to ensuring healthcare coverage, we must guarantee healthcare access. And that's where public health comes in. Because if you have healthcare coverage, but you live in a community with a shortage of primary care physicians or nurses or mental health counselors, then coverage alone is not going to guarantee access. Or if you live in a community that had you to drive 50 miles, 100 miles, however long it is, to access the closest hospital or the closest community health center, which in a lot of the rural parts of our state and across the country still exist, and still here in Los Angeles too, a lot of our low-income communities of color do not have hospitals, do not have community clerk centers, do not have maternity clinics. They don't have care. And so without rebuilding our public health infrastructure, we're not going to be able to truly solve the entire crisis. And thinking about all the examples, the egregious examples of our doctors and nurses wearing trash bags during a pandemic because of lack of access to PPE, that again is a failure of our public health system. And the fact that we've been divesting from public health over the past decade, between 2010 and 2020, the CDC budget was nearly cut in half, while every single year we saw the Pentagon budget increase and is now at over $740 billion. We have invested in policing and incarceration in our military industrial complex and divested from healthcare, housing, and education. And on the topic of harm reduction specifically, one of the programs that our platform is really pushing is developing a new CDC harm reduction program where we invest billions of dollars annually into states, uh, cities, territories, and tribes, and nonprofits to develop harm reduction programs to address substance addiction and substance disorders from a position grounded in public health, grounded in care, not in criminalization and policing. So that's one thing that we're working on. Another policy priority we have is investing billions into constructing new public hospitals, new community care clinics, new maternity clinics, new community health centers, and so forth. These are all important pieces of rebuilding our public health infrastructure and creating a pipeline for youth to be able to enter the healthcare and public health workforce. So that's going to be key. We're not going to solve the shortage of providers we have by not creating pathways 
for more and more youth to enter these fields. And that's why canceling student debt and making public college university tuition free is also an essential component of this. Why? Because of how astronomically expensive medical school is. And that's a huge disincentive for a lot of youth to enter the medical field. And at the same time, what it's done is it's incentivized more and more medical students to enter specialty fields that have much higher pay than primary care physicians. And not to say that we don't need more specialists. Yes, we need more cardiologists, we need more anesthesiologists and so forth, but we have a huge shortage of primary care physicians. And one of the reasons why is because of how expensive medical school is. So again, that's why I'm saying we cannot look at these issues in silos. Education impacts healthcare, impacts housing, impacts climate justice, and in reverse. So we have to look at these issues holistically and solve them holistically. Yeah, definitely. And you spoke on um, healthcare and you spoke on how uh, COVID-19 like, was a wake-up call. Like, we need, there's a lot of things to learn from this. And so by the end of 2022, when the, like, when the election is, um, how would you hope to approach um, going back to normal? Because hopefully by then, like COVID is pretty over, like hopefully. So how would you want to transition back into um, how society needs to be, or even a better society than it was before? I, I think the, the last piece of what you said is what's key, is a better society. I don't think we can go back to a normal that leaves us in before COVID-19 because that normal created the vacuum for the rise of this pandemic. Our failure to invest in public health, our failure to invest in healthcare infrastructure, our failure to address in broadband infrastructure, all of these things collectively uh, led to COVID-19 becoming the catastrophic disaster that it is, and still continues to this day. And while all of this is happening, we've seen the wealthiest 1% further entrench their wealth where they collectively, America's billionaires, collectively increase their wealth by over one trillion. The same year, millions of Americans lost their jobs, lost their health care, weren't able to get a public education because they didn't have internet access. While all of these issues were happening, the top 1% became significantly wealthier, where we now have two people, Elon Musk uh, and Jeff Bezos, who have more wealth than the bottom 40% of Americans. We minted dozens of new billionaires the same year that COVID-19 was at its peak. That's not an accident. That is a failure of institutions, a failure of everything from our tax code to our healthcare services to everything in between. And that's why, again, I keep saying we need to stop looking at this in silos and really understand how they work in tandem together and solve these issues comprehensively. Yeah, and let's move on to another issue, which is foreign policy. You did mention Ukrainian American, you did mention how um, there's a lot of people who, uh, diplomacy or militarism, that has been really increasing. Um, so from, as an Amer uh, Iranian American, how has that shaped your view of foreign policy, especially in the Middle East and Iran? You know, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's disgraceful that our congressman in a city that proudly refers to itself as Tarantulas has the largest population of Iranians outside of Iran. Our congressman still touts the fact that he voted against diplomacy. Our foreign policy is proudly anti-imperialist. 
and anti-colonialist because our foreign policy grounded in militarism has destroyed so many economies across the globe in the name of maximizing corporate profits and protecting property for investors at the expense of working people, at the expense of our climate and our planet, at the expense of so many actual reforms we need to help our communities. We have a $740 billion military budget that is going into the coffers of contractors that are then lobbying our legislators like Brad Sherman to ensure that we're not divesting from the military, to ensure that we're not divesting from weapons of war, and that we're continuing to prop up an industry that is destroying our climate and destroying our economy. We could eradicate homelessness in America with 10% of the Pentagon budget. Our legislators choose not to because their commitment is not to us. That's why I firmly believe that budgets reflect values and priorities. And so our foreign policy is focused on reframing the approach and having a foreign policy grounded in public health, grounded in humanitarianism, grounded in diplomacy. We've imposed all of these economic sanctions on Iran, denied them access to, West, uh, to European institutions, to American institutions, and that have done nothing uh, to reduce the stranglehold of the despotic Iranian regime on the Iranian economy and the Iranian people. It's done nothing to try and influence the Iranian regime from divesting from terrorist organizations. But what it has done is destroy the Iranian economy and destroy the Iranian people. We now have inflation rates leading to the cost of bread being a thousand times higher than it was a couple of years ago. Where you have the IMF saying that the Iranian economy is contracting by as much as 10% per year. That is outrageous. These economic sanctions do not work. And guess what also they've done? The, the, the bitter irony of all this is that war hawks and China hawks like Brad Sherman that continue touting these economic sanctions as being effective, guess what they've done? They've created a vacuum for Iran to now create alliances with China and Russia. Just a couple of weeks ago, we heard about the Iranian regime signing a new agreement with the Chinese government. So what, what exactly have these economic sanctions achieved in terms of improving diplomacy, improving human rights, reducing Iranian investment in terrorism, or in dismantling the Iranian regime? The answer is nothing. They've achieved the opposite. The definition of insanity is doing the exact same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. It's not going to happen. And so that's why our campaign is focused on divesting from our military industrial complex and investing in the needs of our communities, in housing, in education, in healthcare, in climate justice, and reframing our foreign policy towards diplomacy, towards human rights. And on that same issue, Brad Sherman is one of the staunchest defenders of the Israeli government. No government on the face of this planet is above reproach. Palestinian people have a life expectancy that is average 10 years less than Israeli citizens. We have different highway lines for Palestinians than we do for Israeli citizens. They have different healthcare access, different education access. We're talking about millions of people living in occupied territories without basic necessities. 
and we continue to see more settlements, more displacement, more criminalization, more murders of Palestinian children. And we have barely any legislators standing up and saying, this is what injustice and apartheid looks like. And not wanting to condition any aid to Israel as a factor of them actually moving towards real Palestinian sovereignty and working with Palestinians towards true human rights, true justice. We're not seeing that happen. And at the same time, as someone who's worked on public health and is passionate about harm reduction, we can't forget about how our foreign policy decisions, our immigration decisions, have exacerbated or are led by our war on drugs and how we've dis destabilized so many Central American countries as a result of the war on drugs and driven the mass exodus of people to our borders. Our war on drugs has caused these mass migrations, but we're not looking at it from the root cause. And so that's what I mean, again, by reframing the approach and looking at these issues comprehensively and really putting forth real solutions grounded in humanitarianism, grounded in anti-imperialism, grounded in public health. Yeah, and I really think it's important to have, you know, immigrants, not just the Congress or um, just people who understand the impact that the U.S. has on so many different countries and how terrible it can be for those people who live in those countries. Like, if you get elected into Congress, you would be the first um, Iran-American to be elected into Congress in California. And I, I think that's just, we need more representation. We need more people who will be able to understand these issues um, and see from a different viewpoint than what the majority of the U.S. really uh, um, so I want to move on to uh, how you mentioned that we need to be also looking into, we need to be focusing on indigenous people in tribal communities in the U.S. because they also need some, they need more uh, help, they need more, um, uh, they need more, uh, like people to be looking at them basically, they need to be prioritized and you uh, did work as a director for congressional relations for tribal communities um, on Capitol Hill. Um, so how would you uh, plan on using your experiences and in helping indigenous people in general while in Congress? Absolutely, those are fantastic questions. And the fact of the matter is, the United States government has treaty obligations that exist in perpetuity to tribal nations and indigenous people for healthcare, for housing, for education, for public safety. None of those treaties have been honored. None of them. All of them have been abdicated. When we sign the Treaty of Versailles or any other treaty with a European power, we honored those treaties in their entirety. The U.S. government has never honored any treaty in its entirety to our tribal governments and Native peoples. I worked specifically on healthcare advocacy. In 1955, the federal government established the Indian Health Service, which is a federal agency under the Department of Health and Human Services, charged with providing health care in perpetuity uh, to our indigenous Americans. It is the most chronically underfunded healthcare system we have. We spend nearly 12,000 per person annually in our healthcare system, and yet we see terrible health outcomes from chronic disease to infection rates 
to maternal mortality, to child mortality. And that's our healthcare system as a whole. We've talked about how we need to immediately transition to single payer. But as I, as I mentioned earlier, again, spend nearly 12,000 per person nationally on healthcare. We spend less than a third of that within the Indian Health Service. And so Native Americans have a life expectancy that is on average 5.5 years less than the general public. In sub-states, we have life, in a, uh, life expectancy rates that are up to 20 years less than the general population. And so our campaign is really focused on honoring our treaty obligations through numerous ways. One, by permanently and fully funding the Indian Health Service as an entitlement by fully and permanently funding Native American housing programs, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Bureau of Indian Education, and many other programs, and meaningfully integrating tribal priorities throughout every single legislation that Congress works on. And so th these are just some of the things that we need to do. But here in our community, I wanna talk about one of the biggest injustices that we continue to not talk about. And that's where our water comes from here in LA. A little uh, piece of history, um, at the turn of the century, when we saw LA's population uh, explode between 1900 and 1910, uh, there were two people, one Fred Eaton, who was one of the earliest mayors of LA, and another William Mulholland, uh, who was a chief engineer of the LA Water Department and whom we have a large street namesake here in our city. They decided to buy up thousands of acres of land in the Owens Valley, which is by the Nevada border, over 360 miles outside of Los Angeles, and build a pipeline that steals the water from the indigenous Paiute tribes in the Owens Valley down into Los Angeles. They stole that water over 100 years ago. And to this day, the water from the Owens Valley through that pipeline called the LA Aqueduct, continues to supply roughly 40% of the water supply here in Los Angeles. And if the Paiute tribes have so much as a broken water pipe or wanna divert the water for irrigation purposes, they have to drive over 360 miles down to Los Angeles and get the authority of LADWP in order to get it done. We're talking about sovereign tribal nations who don't have control of their own water. And as we've stolen that water and completely destroyed the Owens Valley and drained down that lake, it's led to so many environmental catastrophes where you have particulate matter in the air and dust storms in the area that are 10 times above EPA safety standards. Higher rates of asthma and lung cancer and skin infections and other ailments resulting from these environmental catastrophes. That's what environmental racism looks like. And that's why climate justice is so essential. And that's just one example of how genocide and displacement and the erasure of indigenous sovereignty continues to this day. Definitely. And there's a lot of injustices in the US. Uh, we, and there's a lot of them to go through. We need to like fix a lot of them. Um, and just recently, um, Derek Chauvin, earlier this week, he was charged with second and third degree murder as well as third degree manslaughter for the murder of George Floyd. Um, so 
I want to transition into your ideas for the future of our criminal justice, justice system. So what role do you think this um, uh, hearing or uh, this outcome plays in our and a step towards uh, the elimination of systemic racism and uh, furthermore, how would uh, how do you want to move on from here um, in Congress? While Derek Chauvin's trial was going on, started in late March and this week, police were murdering people on average, three people per day during that same time frame over half of whom were black or Latino. Within a couple of days of Derek Chauvin's conviction, while it was happening, we saw the murder of Dante Wright. We saw the murder of a 13-year-old Adam Toledo. We saw the murder of Makia Bryant. And just yesterday, we also saw the murder of Isaiah Thomas in Virginia. One convicted cop does nothing to change an institution grounded in violence grounded in racism, grounded in oppression. As I mentioned earlier, budgets reflect priorities. We spend over a hundred billion annually on policing in this country. We've invested countless dollars over the last 30 years towards militarizing local police forces, who then go out and oppress and terrorize and harass our local communities of color and our unhoused residents. Here in LA, we had Mayor Garcetti put forth an LAPD budget of over $3 billion. In comparison, our homelessness budget was roughly around $400 million last year, with a uh, proposed budget of $800 million this year. $3 billion versus less than $1 billion, less than a third towards homelessness, and over $3 billion for policing. One in three instances of LAPD use of excessive force are against an unhoused resident. One out of three. I mentioned earlier that our unhoused here in LA, we have roughly 44,000 in a city of 4 million. And yet one third of LAPD use of excessive force are against a tiny, tiny subfraction of our population that also happen to be the most vulnerable the most underserved, the most needing care of services. The point is not healing. The point is criminalization. The point is deportation. The point is displacement. Same thing at our border. When we have an ICE budget of over $8 billion, yet funding for our immigration and asylum courts are only 5% of that, it's no wonder we have a backlog of over 1.2 million people within our immigration system because the focus and the priority is not creating a legislative pathway to citizenship. The focus and the priority is criminalization and deportation and harm. And so what the solutions look like? If there was ever a shadow of a doubt that police trainings and reform and a national database to track misconduct were gonna be the solutions, that doubt was unequivocally eradicated on January 6, 2021, when the most sacred building in our democracy was ransacked by a mob of white supremacists 
that openly and publicly planned that insurrection for months on social media, propped up by the former president. Were they met by military police? Were they met by police in riot gear? Were they met by barricades? Or were they met by an intentionally unprepared police force that were moving barricades out of the way, taking selfies with cops inside the most hallowed chambers of our democracy, gently walking people down the steps of Capitol Hill? What did we see when white supremacist mobs started protesting outside of state capitals, protesting mask requirements and safety shutdowns because of a pandemic with armed assault right armed with assault rifles outside those state capitals? Did we see one arrest? Did we see one cop decked out in military gear? Did we see one tank rolling through the street? Did we hear about any tear gas, any rubber bullets? No. But what happened when peaceful protesters went out to protest the state-sanctioned murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor? What were they met with? When my wife and I were protesting the state-sanctioned murder of George Floyd outside the White House, we were trampled by Secret Service. When people all across this country stand up and fight for justice, they are arrested, they are criminalized with impunity, they are murdered. We had over 60 squad cars and five police helicopters raid an encampment of an unhoused residence at Echo Parks a couple of weeks ago and violently displaced. It's, it's how quickly do these military forces assemble to respond to working people just trying to survive? How quickly they assemble to displace our unhoused residents? How quickly they assemble to terrorize peaceful protesters. How quickly they assemble to murder unarmed black and brown men. And how absent they are when white supremacists show up. There is no reform to a system grounded in institutional racism. There is only abolition. There is only real investment in healing and restorative justice in housing in education, in public health, in public education. And that's why our campaign proudly supports the BREATHE Act championed by the Movement for Black Lives, a comprehensive piece of legislation to completely demilitarize our police, to abolish our carceral system of punishments, and invest in the reforms we actually need. Mass incarceration is not an accident. It is designed to oppress and terrorize communities of color. It is no accident that for decades, the mandatory minimum punishment for crack cocaine was exponentially higher than for powdered cocaine. It is by no accident that we have militarized police forces in our low-income communities of color and no militarized police forces in our affluent white communities. That is by design. That is why abolition is the only way forward and reimagining public safety to actually look like public investment. Yeah, and I was going to ask you if there's any um, governmental policies that you would be wanting to support, but you did speak on the Breathe Act. Um, 
So actually, before we continue, my computer is dying. I need to get my charger. I'll just cut the no problem. of the podcast. I'll be right back. No problem. Sorry about that. <laughs> so uh, moving on, um, we have gone through a lot of your policies. Um, and something I have noticed uh, throughout looking through your website before, before this interview, um, there's a lot of similarities between you and a lot of other grassroots campaigns, for example, like um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Um, in fact, there's a lot of similarities I've noticed because you are, you, she also went against an incumbent who was there for many years um, and she ran with a progressive uh, campaign and she won. So is there, is there anything to learn from her? Is there, does it give you hope um, throughout your campaign, knowing that there's other people who have succeeded with the grassroots campaign campaigns? Absolutely. And I think more importantly, what it demonstrates is that progressive policies matter and that our communities absolutely want them. We think about what happened during the 2020 election, where the Democrats lost, what was it, 13, 14 seats. Those seats were all lost to moderates, centrists. Those are the people who lost their seats. Not a single progressive lost their seat. In fact, we had progressives flip seats. We had someone like Cori Bush be elected, like Jamal Bowman be elected, like Marie Newman be elected. Because people are waking up to how the status quo has intentionally denied the services and relief and bailouts we need for working people. People are waking up to our system of corporate welfare. People are waking up to how uh, much reform we need within our healthcare system, education system, public education system, et cetera, et cetera. People are waking up to realize we need institutional reform and we are sick and tired of legislators that sit there and occupy our seats in Congress on behalf of corporations and do their bidding, maximize their profits, ensure no policies move forward that reduce their bottom line, or impose regulations that protect public safety because they don't want them. And those are the only voices that are heard. To give an example, when I was advocating on Capitol Hill, one of the top healthcare policies that everyone in Congress talked about was a solution to surprise medical billing. In very basic terms, surprise medical billing is an instance where let's say someone is really, really diligent about only going to in-network providers through your healthcare coverage, but you're in a car accident or there's some sort of emergency, you need a hip replacement, whatever it may be, you gotta go to an emergency room or you go to the hospital and unbeknownst to you, you're treated by providers employed at that hospital or that emergency room that are not part of your insurance network. And then three weeks later, a month later, you're slapped with a $10,000 bill a $40,000 bill, a $100,000 bill. That's surprise medical billing. And so everyone in Congress agreed that patients should be held harmless of these bills, but no one could agree on how to pay for it. Why? Because the only stakeholders that were involved in answering the question of how to pay for it were the very industries that created the surprise medical billing crisis. The hospital lobby on one end and health insurers on the other. And you had both of them pouring millions and millions of dark money into ad buys, into lobbying legislators, 
and to try to stranglehold people into pushing for the solutions they wanted. Hospitals on one end arguing for solutions that benefited their bottom line, the insurance companies on the other. Who was caught in the middle? Who suffered? The American people, patients. This is a story again and again and again throughout every single issue where the solutions are not put forth by the people most harmed, by the people most impacted. Not putting forth solutions grounded in addressing the root causes of those problems. Instead, we put forth incremental solutions, band-aids on bullet wounds, and put forth solutions that benefit corporations, not working people. Enough is enough. And until we see a system where we're completely abolishing corporate investment in our systems of government, completely removing corporate money from our political system, these issues will not go away because corporate money inherently corrupts our political system. And there is no role for it in a truly democratic, truly equitable society. Um, yeah, I've always said that the US has always been very like reactionary to events. They don't really go to the cause they don't make preemptive actions to stop things, just we'll put band-aids over things, as you said. Um, so we're, we're coming to the close of this interview, but um, we did recently interview Lorraine Lundquist, who um, ran for city council, uh, but she lost sadly. So um, I really do have a lot of um, hope for your campaign. I really do think you're gonna win, as you said, like progressive seats are very, um, recently have been um, winning more, but, if you end up not winning, how do you plan to continue to serve the um, San Fernando Valley um, through other uh, uh, ways of serving? You know, I, I was following Lorraine's campaign very closely. Uh, she was a, a phenomenal, phenomenal candidate, super focused on environmental justice and climate change. And I was also really disheartened uh, to see her lose to a, a Republican councilman who is horrendous in every shape of the word. Um, and people like Lorraine are still incredibly involved in mutual aid and advocacy on the ground. And so am I. And that's because, as I mentioned earlier, I've always fought for social justice through the lens of public health, and that will never go away. And I've always been a big picture thinker, and I've always fought for the policies that we need to actually bail out working people. And I will continue to fight for that, win or lose. You know, with this Valley Harmony Project, we're really hoping that it turns into a sustainable long-term project to address um, and provide harm reduction supplies to our unhoused residents and the entire community. You know, we've been organizing, I've been organizing with various groups, including West Valley People's Alliance, to address the needs of our unhoused, providing outreach every Sunday, providing food, tents, tarps, harm reduction supplies, showing up uh, when our city is planning violent sweeps of our unhoused community. And that work will never go away because it's always organizers. It's always activists that provide the movements for change and are doing the work in our communities to protect and empower the most vulnerable among us. And I'm always inspired by the work of grassroots organizers. They're the ones that keep legislators accountable and move the needle forward and press the structural reforms we need. And that work for me will never go away. It's always been with me and will always stay with me. Um, and we really want you to win. We really want you to go and be able to implement all of your policies into Congress. So 
um, how could other people get involved with the campaign and help you? Yes, great question. Um, so we are really focused on building a new political coalition of young people, people of color, immigrants, uh, to achieve the structural reforms we're all fighting for. Uh, that's why we're really focused on registering new voters, meeting our community where they're at, holding driveway discussions, Zoom discussions with five people, 10 people, 15 people, just talking about the issues that people care about, the reforms they want to see, the kind of advocacy they want their legislator to focus on. Because our firm belief, our campaign's firm belief, is that co-governance is how we achieve structural change. And elevating and centering the voices of those most impacted by our institutional failures. And so great ways to get involved are through our website, shervinforthevalley.com. You can sign up to volunteer. Uh, you can sign up to provide services, work with our mutual aid networks. And we also have a community page uh, that highlights uh, several uh, community organizations here in the West Valley doing phenomenal work on everything from housing justice to racial justice to healthcare justice and everything in between. Um, so those are some great ways to get involved um, and continue spreading the word. You know, I, our campaign really wants to be able to meet everybody where they're at and focus on the issues they want to talk about, holding these kinds of Zoom discussions like this. And so we're hoping to set up office hours within our campaign. Uh, so we have weekly times available for folks to just jump on the phone, jump on the computer and have a chat with us about things they care about. Um, and we are really, really youth driven in our campaign. We have over 91 volunteers signed up so far. And our youngest volunteer is 13 years old. He's a middle, he's a middle school student. And he is absolutely fantastic. Um, and that's what a broad coalition is all about. It's working people, people of color, immigrants, young people from all across the spectrum. All of us working together hand in glove to protect and empower our communities. Yeah, and I'd really recommend everyone to go check out that website just to look at it. It's really pretty. I just <laughs> like the way it looks. Um, but also, we couldn't, we couldn't get through everything in this interview, so there's a lot you can go read there. He has very detailed layouts for all of his policies. It's very nice. I wish you could check it out. Um, but that is the end of our interview, and I really want to thank you for being here because this was a great um, conversation. I loved hearing all of your thoughts, and I really wish for the best for the rest of your campaign. Thank you, Rahul. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to San Fernando. And I look forward to, uh, to working with you all again in the future. Thank you. Um, Take care. Bye. Uh, and also, uh, for the end, um, uh, go ahead and check out the rest of our videos uh, for Local Leaders Podcast. Um, and we will be having more in the future. And that's it. Uh, so, bye. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us for more content. Also, be sure to check us out on our Instagram page at Stand Up San Fernando. Thank you for listening. See you again.